Welcome to the Von Nelson Podcast. My name is Dan Hughes, Client Portfolio Manager. Today with me is Scott Weber. Scott is a Senior Portfolio Manager at Von Nelson and has been with the firm since 2003. Welcome, Scott. Thanks, Dan. Glad to be here. Today, given the expansion that we've seen globally in terms of balance sheets, I thought it would be interesting to discuss what we're seeing with respect to flow, market distortion, and price discovery. Already, your date through the first quarter, we've seen roughly a trillion dollars printed. What have you initially seen inside the market for yourself, Scott, uh, so far this year? I, I think it's it's less a function of, of, of year-to-date and more a function of the broader arc post the financial crisis. I think you know, liquidity is an interesting aspect in that it is perhaps underappreciated as a as a fundamental or a meta-fundamental, but it certainly amplifies uh, any underlying fundamental vector that, that you may use. And so I think it deserves greater respect in the overall uh, valuation equation. You, you ask me whether or not it's been detrimental or, or constructive, and I think it really depends on the market environment. And to the extent that you're staring down the barrel of a crisis, it's obviously a lovely thing to have. Uh, whether or not that continues to be the case is subject for debate. So, you know, we're, we're, we're nearly eight years in now, and, you know, I wonder if you trace an arc of where we started and the certainly the initial benefits of, of provi- providing a, a bottom and um, some support, but, you know, does, does that overarching theme now as where we are today, uh, has it become overextended? I, I think it's not a black and white issue, but with respect to a gradient, you could argue that it is becoming less constructive. Uh, as I mentioned in the crisis, it was a novel approach and, uh, and that positive surprise supported uh, risk assets, broadly speaking. I think the value of that support is undermined as the market participants grow dependent upon it, i.e. they include it in their model. I mean, if you think about what we do at Von Nelson, we say we trade time for value. And what we mean by that is we, we seek attractive long-term opportunities that might be masked by myopic concerns of the market, but when you've got you know near zero rates and really thin spreads, uh, it has a way of of distorting fundamental valuation tools. Uh, just by way of example, if we we're talking about the time value of money in a classic DCF framework, what value does time have at a near zero rate? Uh, it certainly suppresses volatility. I think uh, you know last week we had two days where the VIX closed. Uh, below 10 twice. You, you can argue with the, uh, the validity of VIX as a, as, a, as a measure of vol, but clearly it's one objective view. Um, you know, certainly lower hurdle rates uh, from an investment standpoint uh, might have the detrimental effect of pulling projects forward. Uh, that, that could lead to overcapacity. That could be a portion of what we're seeing in waning productivity growth. Uh, these are all sort of secondary symptoms of, of easy money, you know, and, and that liquidity is ultimately sourced at the wellspring, which are the, the central banks. Um, as a tangent, you know, this could speak to the shifting nature of returns a little bit uh, away from capital towards labor uh, at the very least. Uh, it might argue to the extent that we have pulled forward demand, it might argue that uh, margins are uh, going to be challenged uh, going forward. But we, we know this, liquidity is a uh, supportive feature for risk assets, and each of the four major central banks are in some varying form of inflection, uh, whether you want to call it taper or rate shift, 
Uh, and in any case, that directs the momentum directionally, sorry, it disrupts the directional momentum of liquidity, and, and that that's a cause for concern. Um, I, I will say at the same time, as an empiricist, you know, you, you look towards fundamentals as an increasing component of your overall uh, return estimation. And, and so in some ways, it's in as much as the house may have been built on a weak foundation for the last years, the last few years, you've got a stronger foundation being formed, but that calls perhaps for a more disruptive market environment. And then I would also add on to that, one of the additional things that we've seen here uh, due to excess liquidity is this accelerating shift to passive investment. And just in, in by way of, of historical sense, we saw roughly on a global scale between 2001 and 2015, a trillion dollars move into passive investing. Um, in 2016 alone, a trillion dollars moved into passive investing. So you know, certainly this phenomenon has accelerated. Uh, and so to what degree would you say that this is uh, QE backed? And again, as this relates to uh, your portfolio management, how is this affecting you? Yeah, that's a giant uh, broad arc. Um, let's let's take it bit by bit. It, it, QE isn't affecting the way we invest. Let's let's uh, accept to say that it's an input in our uh, our models. Um, in as much as QE may be a source of passive investing, uh, I think it's a, it's a long arc to lead, and, and much academic research can be uh, explored on that subject. But l let's say what we've at least observed, and, and that is to your point, flows have moved passive. No doubt about it. Uh, I, I think that uh, as an active manager, it, it is a headwind from a business standpoint, but it's a growing opportunity from an investing standpoint. Uh, and that is, I believe that you know, passive investing is inherently a momentum strategy. Uh, it lacks price discovery. I, I don't have the number at hand, but a good portion of this year's low double-digit low double S&P return can be attributed really to the top, what, four or five positions. So in as much as passive investing lacks price discovery, it therefore lacks a fundamental underpinning. That's how you get to uh, some of the, the, you know, the extended multiples. I mean, by way of example, the uh, cyclically adjusted PE has only been higher twice in history, or at least since 1871. That was in 1929 and in 2000. Was it work out too well? Yeah, yeah that, that gives you pause, right? Um, and so in as much as passive is a way that has, let's say passive investing has accommodated large inflows without a massive uh, footprint, uh, the risk on the outflow side of that is exacerbated. Um, and whether that is a sovereign trying to warehouse capital in the dollar via an S&P index or a large uh, pension shifting to a greater portion of passive, uh, in each of those cases, uh, it's almost like a levered position in that there's not a fundamentalist with a deep value view to take the other side of a declining market that may be uh, initiated not by some true economic underpinning, but rather just a simple outflow. Now, a simple outflow means that there's a seller, and that's a, absolutely a reason that the asset should be worth less, but there's less natural buyers on the other side of that to absorb that shock. So, um, so so you're describing an, an interesting mechanical phenomenon that taking that could potentially take place here, right? You're describing these these large institutions, sovereign funds, pensions making these these one-time moves into passive, um, but yet once we reach the tipping point when we're no longer accelerating, they're falling. 
there's not enough of uh, the velocity of money going into these passive investments isn't at a high enough rate to support those assets. The bottom essentially would could be very harsh and very swift as it falls out of the, those passive invest vehicles. Yeah, I think I think you covered a lot of points there. And generally speaking, the answer to it is yes. Um, in as much as there's that you know uh, well-traveled Buffett aphorism that the market is in the short term a, a voting machine and in the longer term a weighing machine, there are fewer counterweights on that on that machine should there be a disruption. And so as you know, as we've talked about, you've got not especially cheap valuation. You've got low uh, volatility underpinned by liquidity in a shifting liquidity environment at the wellspring. It, it, it just gives you uh, cause for pause if you were blindly throwing capital into an index fund right now, because at their very essence, uh, an ETF lacks price discovery. So why don't we start moving on to the specifics to some of the names that been in the construction of what's taking place with the portfolio of late. Uh, you know, just refresh owns roughly 25 names at, at any given point, and you know when we do make a change inside the portfolio or add a name or subtract a name, it's it's a uh, you know somewhat notable. Um, but a couple new names have come on the board uh, of late. Um, one of them, uh, a media named Fox. Uh, could you run through your thesis real briefly on that? Absolutely. Re recalling this you know fundamental tenet that we will be willing to trade time for value. Uh, but what we believe is there is a shifting market dynamic in media, broadly speaking, across two main vectors. The first is distribution. Everyone's heard the phrase cord cutting uh, over the top. And, and, and then the second is um, advertising monetization. And so these are two very broad subjects. And, and Fox is going to be the net beneficiary of, frankly, uh, both, I believe. Um, with respect to the advertising monetization uh, we believe that in the long run, that might actually shift the nature of you know, linear broadcasting creative content because there are different uh, willingnesses on the consumer's part to consume content on a paid versus non-paid basis. And, you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch, but some people uh, are going to be willing to continue watching a show once a week for 30 minutes to an hour with ad breaks every 10 minutes. Others will binge watch perhaps over the top perhaps paid or perhaps with an ad interspersed or perhaps with a longer form ad in the beginning. In broad strokes, we, we, we believe that um, the ad load can be reduced and yet the ad yield and return enhanced both from the consumer standpoint in terms of less footprint, i.e. if you're going to binge watch a show, not having a break in the form with respect to uh, the, you know, the plot line, et cetera, where you have a forced commercial every 10 minutes or so can, can give great freedom to the content uh, provider, but also it enhances the stickiness of the programming. At the same time, the knowledge that advertisers have about how they're getting a return, if you think about the difference between traditional linear broadcasting today, where you use a Nielsen-type data set, uh, a sample effectively, to value that uh, impression, versus what Facebook has where you volunteer very specific information, uh, or, or Google in their uh, efforts to uh, sort of uh, triangle in or, or form that view via mosaic theory, I, I think there's convergence there. And certainly the big growth in ad spend lately, by lately I mean the last few years, has been uh, in online uh, and, of course, mobile. That uh, has, has faced a little bit of a cyclical frustration in this notion of fake clicks, et cetera. But in as much as it is a more known quantity, 
uh, and, and Nielsen sampling maybe is not as much of a known quantity, it's easy to construct an environment where there's convergence about the two, particularly as the industry uh, gravitates towards this holy grail of, of total audience measurement where they can get to the value of your impression across any platform because uh, they've got better data about you. So, so if, I, if I'm understanding this correctly, essentially what you're saying is you know, through this, you're going to ultimately see greater transparency, you can work through a more highly targeted audience, and the uh, ad purchaser ends up with a far, a far higher quality spend for them, which I would imagine then opens up the doors for um, you know a, a much larger spectrum of typical of, of uh, potential um, ad revenue generation. Yeah, I think I think to simplify it from the consumer's perspective, it enhances choice and reduces the ad load, which makes you a more responsive audience. From the advertiser's perspective, you get much better quality data, and and. Even perhaps in the face of a reduced ad load, you might get a better return. And so it's a win-win for both. And so the inefficiencies inherent in the system today are, are being eliminated through technology, and we will result in a point where the consumer can consume media in their form of preference, the advertiser has better quality data, the frictional intermediaries are reduced in the aggregate, so really everybody wins in that regard. The, the other aspect that I would point to um, that's shifting in this industry is this notion of distribution. Um, and so we've, we've heard uh, the notion of cord cutting, you know, over the top. And, and I'm, I'm not here to tell you that, you know, Fox is predicated on everyone converting to an over the top method tomorrow. In fact, quite the opposite. I think that the transition is forcing the light on what the viewers, particularly in the affiliate networks, uh, you know, the local networks, it, it, it is almost a mix shift positive because it's a better recognition of the value that a consumer has, whether they consume it over the air, over the top, um, or or you know on the iPad on the way to the convenience store. So it, it I think there there are two massive shifts that again are being masked by some of the uh, lawsuits and, and and discord with respect to the management and also the pending acquisition of Sky and and that that's the opportunity set that that uh, Fox presents. That's great. All right, so let's move on to two other names and. Uh... You know, two other recent names that we picked up, both in, in the world of housing, uh, Home Depot and Sherwin-Williams. And uh, I'm guessing that, you know, as, as we've looked at through the data, autos, we feel, certainly have peaked, but perhaps with this uh, housing, not yet. And, and can you tell me why uh, I'm looking at this uh, maybe a little bit on too high a level where, you know, they don't just simply represent what housing sits at today? No, I think you, you throw in autos and there's three very interesting names there that we can talk about that are recent additions to the portfolio. Moving back to front, you know, we did uh, take a meaningful position in Delphi recently, and that's not a a U.S. Or a, or a global SARS story. That's a content shift story where the electronic uh, uh, penetration of that market is growing. That mix is very favorable to Delphi. And this potential notion of spinning off the powertrain business is sort of the, the exclamation point on what we've witnessed over the last couple of years of a, a shifting mix at that business and good decisions. It's not, by it's not about more vehicles. It's about getting a larger component. Correct. Vehicle. Correct. It's, it's, it's the market fears of SARS that give you the opportunity, though. With respect to the other two names that you referenced, uh, Home Depot and Sherwin, you're, you're right. The fundamental underlying driver is very similar. The method of, of getting your return is a bit different in each. Um, I'd, I'd say that if you look back to the global financial crisis, you know, again, referencing autos, you had a quick recovery, a reasonably quick recovery in spend there. But there's been latency about spend on housing, generally speaking. And I want to delineate this. I'm, I'm not saying that that you know, starts are going to rapidly increase, and I'm not saying that uh, 
that um, that that home builders necessarily are are the world's best asset at this point. Rather, dollars spent on homes, particularly when coupled with the supply discipline that the industry has brought, it's interesting. You know. We've gone. This is probably the longest we've gone in any conversation where we haven't mentioned Amazon, particularly in the context of retail. But you know, whereas retail is fundamentally challenged, there's distinctions about both Home Depot and Sherwin which make them attractive. Um, and 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 it starts again with this notion of supply discipline. So in the case of Home Depot, you have a very underlevered balance sheet, a fantastic management team um, uh, who owns something north of 90% of their uh, real estate uh, in a situation where the incremental margins are very attractive and improving and a good bit of the capital that they're generating as volume increases is going to come back to you as a shareholder. Now, that is predisposed really more towards the do-it-yourself um, uh, person. You know, the, the, the Saturday trip, obviously contractors shop there as well, but just to mark a distinction between that and Sherwin, if uh, if you're going to say there's a DIY aspect, it's it's obviously more predicated towards Home Depot, and and in terms of their ability to uh, to compete with the online world, so the vast majority of the online purchases that are made and picked up in the store are accompanied with subsequent in-store purchases, and when you're in the store, you've got fantastic systems to find what you need. I mean. I believe every employee carries an iPhone that, that can tell you that the item you're looking for is on this row on that shelf, and here's how many they have in stock. Now, if you distinguish that from Sherwin, you have a lot more stores that do not own them, but frankly, the retail frustration, which we believe manifests in reduced rent expense for the industry, plays to their benefit because they're centrally located uh, near jobs. They've got quite a few more stores. And, and there's another aspect to the return engine at Sherwin, which is distinguished from Home Depot, and that is there's a corporate transaction underway. Not only are they about to close on the Valspar acquisition, which will increase, to be fair, their DIY exposure a bit, but there, um, there are other companies in the industry undergoing merger uh, discussions at various levels, which leads to I won't use the word oligopolistic, but it leads to greater uh, price discipline amongst industry uh, competitors. Uh, this is uh, th this is a business that's been very well run, and we believe the market underappreciates the return possibility um, that will follow the combined uh, Valspar Sherwin entity. And so you bring up Amazon, and and I think you're exactly right. And in most of the conversations we have in house here, a lot of times, you know, the the, the counter argument will be. Can this be Amazon away? And and so what I take away from this is you know this is a an unlikely space for both of these to be Amazon away given the the the, the product that you are going to uh, look for there the competence and the skill of the employee which it sounds like that's a you know a really distinguishable piece um, but then also the as needed or instant nature of um, you know someone who's working on a project or you know your toilet breaks and you can't wait 48 hours to go get a piece or the contractor who is painting the wall uh, needs an extra quart or pint of paint, um, they're a little bit short. You need to have that, that job uh, completed really in, in, in real time. So you know, those are, it seems like they are a bit, would you say, insulated? I, I, insulated is, is probably a kind description. I mean, obviously there's going to be bleeding, uh, you know, in, in terms of share associated with, you know, individual transactions. In the, in the case of Home Depot, uh, the exogenous threat is, you know, Amazon's investment in, uh, in, in warehouses to support large, difficult to ship items. 
which is a recent announcement. But by and large, you're, you're spot on. The DIY customer is going there to complete the project on Saturday. There, there are obviously a good, a good flow of uh, contractor customers going through. But these are difficult and often not fully foreseen days in advance uh, items that need to be purchased. And frankly, uh, Home Depot is doing what they need to out-hustle. The, the moat, if you will, for Sherwin is a bit bigger in that there's really an agency distinction here because the purchaser at a Sherwin is, is, you know, is the contractor, but the contractor is pushing that cost through as part of their job. And so convenience and the ability to complete their mission in a timely basis factors into that person's decision. And so you know, they've, they've got longstanding, you know, obviously relationship-driven selling in multiple locations. And so the contractor isn't going to drive to the Home Depot when it's twice as far as the Sherwin to get a bit more paint. Now, they would both argue for the quality of their brands. They would both argue for their, the quality of the execution of management. I, I think those are abstract notions that are very difficult to, to value uh, by themselves. But we can get our brain around this notion of you know, of the placement of the agency model with respect to Sherwin and, 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 and of Home Depot's capital discipline. Well, Scott, thank you. This has been really insightful. I uh, appreciate the, uh, the thoughts on both the market and in the portfolio. Is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience before we, uh, before we get you going? Sure. I'd, I'd leave you with one thought as it pertains to, um, you know, the active versus passive discussion. I heard it said years ago, and, and it's not bandied about very often, but I heard it said that if you don't know why you bought an asset, you'll never know when to sell it. And to the extent that uh, capital has, has found its way into an ETF, um, you, you won't know when to sell it. And with less liquidity, uh, particularly from uh, the lack of prop desks, uh, et cetera, uh, I, I can't help but imagine that future disruptions have less shock absorbers. And so uh, knowing what you own and why you own it, I think, is imperative. Thank you for listening in, and if you have any questions you'd like for me to relay to the team over here at Vaughn Nelson, please feel free to email me at dhughes at vaughnnelson.com, and thank you very much. Important information. The analysis and opinions referenced herein represent the subjective views of Daniel Hughes and Scott Weber on May 15, 2017. They are subject to change at any time based on market and other conditions. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Top 10 holdings for the Von Nelson Select Fund as of 3-31-2017. First, United Health Group, Inc., 5.45%. Second, General Dynamics Corp., 5.37%. Third, Delphi Automotive, 5.32%. Fourth, Medtronic, 5.20%. Fifth, Microsoft Corp., 4.64%. Sixth, Priceline Group, 4.61%. Seven, Honeywell International, 4.11%. Eighth, 21st Century Fox, 4.06%. Ninth, Newell Brands, 4.04%. Tenth, Envision Healthcare, 4.00%. Any reference to specific securities, sectors, or markets within this material does not constitute investment advice or a recommendation or an offer to buy or to sell any security or an offer of services. This communication is for information only and is intended for investment professional use only. This material may not be redistributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Although Natixis Global Asset Management believes the information provided in this material to be reliable, 
It does not guarantee the accuracy, adequacy, or completeness of such information. Equity securities are volatile and can decline significantly in response to broad market and economic conditions. Non-diversified funds invest a greater portion of assets in fewer securities and therefore may be more vulnerable to adverse changes in the market. Options may be used for hedging purposes, but also entail risks related to liquidity, market conditions, and credit that may increase volatility. Leverage can increase market exposure and magnify investment risk. Foreign and emerging market securities may be subject to greater political, economic, environmental, credit, currency, and information risks. Foreign securities may be subject to higher volatility than U.S. securities due to varying degrees of regulation and limited liquidity. These risks are magnified in emerging markets. Value investing carries the risk that a security can continue to be undervalued by the market for long periods of time. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit ngam.natixis.com or call 800-862-4863 for a prospectus or a summary prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully. Provided by NGAM Distribution, LP, 399 Boylston Street, Boston, Massachusetts, 02116. Compliance Code 18014801. Job Pod 103-0517 expires 10-31-2017.